Father God, we thank you for this morning. We thank you that you have been here, that you are here, and Lord, that you want to speak to us now through the word that you've given to us. So Lord, may we be good hearers of your word, and as we leave this place later, that we be good doers of your word as well. I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Brothers and sisters, as followers of Jesus, we are people of faith and people of hope. In other words, we live our lives based on things that we can't see. We live our entire lives, the foundation of our lives, we live on things that we can't see. God is here. The Bible is true. Forgiveness from our Creator is available to us through the shed blood of Jesus. Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. We know these things by this gift that God has given to us called faith. And Hebrews 11 says that faith is being sure of what you do not see. We know that the Bible is true by faith. We know that forgiveness is available to Je- through Jesus by faith. We know that Jesus is risen from the dead by faith. Now, it doesn't mean that we don't have good reasons for our faith. We do. We have more evidence of the historical resurrection of Jesus than in any other event in ancient history. And at one point in my life, it was a deep encouragement to me to study those historical reasons for believing in the resurrection of Jesus. But knowing those reasons is not what saves me. They encourage me. They increase my confidence. But the gift that God has given us to know these things is this thing called faith. And God loves when people live their lives by faith. And we're also a people of hope. We live right now according to what we believe that God is, uh, of things that God is going to do in the future. We live in hope that Jesus is going to return and to bring justice and to make all things right. This week, did you have a difficult time believing that? I did. But we live in hope that one day men and women from every tribe, tongue, language, and nation will bow and worship to one king. We live in hope that one day the Lord will make his kingdom come and his will be done here on earth as it is in heaven. We live in hope that the whole earth will be filled with the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the seas. These are all things that we hope for. We can't see them yet, but our lives are lived now with our faces pointed in the direction of our hope. We are people of faith. We are people of hope. People who live each day and each moment according to truths that we can't see and according to promises that we hope for. Our psalm today is Psalm 125. Would you turn in your Bibles with me? And I would encourage you, if you didn't bring your Bible today, and you should bring your Bibles to church, by the way, bring your Bibles to church. But if you didn't today, uh, please grab the Bible in front of you. We're going to be reading uh, in quite a few different places today. 
Our reading today is from Psalm 125. Those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be shaken but endures forever. As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people both now and forever. The scepter of the wicked will not remain over the land allotted to the righteous, for then the righteous might use their hands to do evil. Do good, O Lord, to those who are good, to those who are upright in heart. But those who turn to crooked ways, the Lord will banish with the evildoers. Peace be upon Israel. The psalm that we are looking at today is a psalm about trust. We don't know the specific occasion for why this psalm was written, but it was clear that whoever wrote it must have been trying to remind God's people that they can trust God in uncertain times. He begins the psalm by saying that if they trust in God, that their life is as firm and as strong as a mountain. And not just any mountain, but as firm and as strong as Mount Zion, the dwelling place of God. The psalm writer points them to faith. If you trust in God, your life cannot be moved. Verse 3 suggests that this psalm was written in a season of Israel's history when they were living under ungodly and unrighteous leadership. And the psalm writer points them to hope. The psalm writer says that ungodly leadership will not remain forever. There will be a day in the future when God will remove ungodly leadership and God will bring his justice and his good and his perfect rule forever. This psalm is about having faith and hope, about trusting God in uncertain times, at times when we don't feel safe, in times when we feel as if we're living with poor and ungodly leadership, in times when the circumstances of our own life make it difficult for us to have confidence in God. This psalm reminds us that God is what makes us secure. Psalm 1 and 2 says that he is like the mountains surrounding Jerusalem. Even when we are weak, even when our faith feels paper thin, even when we are hopeless, God is here. Our security comes from God, not in how strong our hope and our faith are. Our security comes from God, not in how strong our faith and our hope are, not in our ability and our own spiritual strength and our own stamina. And we know this from Israel's history, right? In their history, they were faithful one day and they were complaining the next, right? They were obedient one day and they were grumbling against Moses the next. But all throughout that time, they were still called Israel. They're still called his people. The same is true of us, isn't it? Fickle in our faith, obedient one day, disobedient the next. Believing one day, grumbling the next. But we are still called his children. Our security comes from the promises of God and not from our present circumstances. The psalm writer knew that sometimes bad things happen to God's people. The psalm writer knew that the physical city of Jerusalem throughout its history sometimes had good godly leaders and sometimes had terrible leaders in charge of it. But the psalm writer calls his people to hope, to hope in the promises of God that God is able to make terrible things and to make them beautiful 
to take what human beings intend for evil and to turn them into good. The psalm writer calls us to faith and hope. He reminds us that God is who he says he is and that he will do what he says he will do. Those who trust in God are secure like Mount Zion. This is the message of first verses 1 and 2. Now I want to focus most of our time this morning on verse 3. The scepter of the wicked will not remain over the land allotted to the righteous, for then the righteous might use their hands to do evil. This first recognizes that there is a danger. There's a danger for us as God's people when we are living under poor or ungodly leadership. When God's people live under leaders who are wicked, then there is a danger that people may lose faith, they may lose hope, and they may use their own hands for evil. This is the verse that really grabbed my attention this week. And when God's people live under ungodly leaders, there is a danger for us as God's people to then use our own hands for evil. I want to suggest to you this morning that there are two opposite but equally dangerous ways that we can do evil when we are living under ungodly leadership. That we can fall in one of two very opposite directions as followers of Jesus, and we need to walk the line of faithfulness. We need to walk the line of faithfulness. The first way that we can fall is to try to undermine our leaders at any cost, even at the cost of our own honesty and our own integrity and our own faithfulness to Jesus. I think the most common example that I see of this today is the ways that we spread dishonest information about our leaders through email or through social media. This is rampant in our culture, and I feel like Christians may be worse than other people about this. It seems to me. Because we may really be disappointed or even despise the leaders above us, we're willing to do anything to undermine him or her, willing to even lie or to spread untruths, to paint our political enemies in the worst possible light. And I'm not really sure why Christians think that this is okay. We don't want people to treat us that way. So why do we treat others that way? So that's one way that we can fall when we have ungodly leaders, to believe that the ends justify the means, and that we lose our integrity and our honesty in response to the poor leadership that we are under. The second way that we can fall, it's the opposite way, is that we simply follow our leaders. We simply follow the ways that they lead us. And this is true from the very most closest intimate relationships we have all the way up to the top. In our homes, our kids follow us. In our workplaces, we follow our leaders or other people follow us. In our churches, in places of influence like entertainment or the media, people follow. And we as Christians must be aware of what we are following. The danger that we have is to, uh, to allow those who have authority, who have influence over us, to lead us down the wrong path. Because it's easier to go along just to get along. And, and it's easier to be on the side of those who are winning. Uh, my uh, third daughter, Evie, is turning five today. And uh, whenever I'm watching sports, this happens every time. She comes into the room, and she looks at the TV, and the conversation goes something like this. Dad, who's winning, the red team or the white team? And I say, well, the red team's winning 20 to 12. I'm rooting for the red team. (laughs) 
every time. Whose side am I on? Well, whoever is winning, that's what side I'm on. And this is a temptation for us to simply go along with whoever's winning, with whoever's in control, whoever's making the rules. We'll play by their rules so that we can win as well. Just go along with the culture and to not make waves and to do whatever our leaders tell us, whether that's our political leaders or our cultural leaders, our leaders in the media, it's easier, it's usually more profitable for us, it's simpler to just not make any trouble. What I want to challenge us with, with, us with today is that our calling at all times, whether we have leaders who are good or not, our callings at all times is to trust in the faithfulness of Jesus, our King. I want to point us today to an example in Israel's own history when God's people were called to be faithful in an uncertain time. When they were called to be faithful when they were living under poor leadership. It's the story of Daniel and his friends living in Babylon. In the year 589 B.C., a long time ago, There was a king of Babylon called Nebuchadnezzar, and he brought a large army to Jerusalem, and he surrounded the whole city with his army. And as he surrounded the whole city, he just sat and he waited. He would not allow anyone to leave the city, and he would not allow anyone to come in. No food or water or supplies to come in. And so eventually the people began to starve in Jerusalem. And once the people were so weak and starving to death, then Nebuchadnezzar came through Jerusalem. He slaughtered the city. He set the city on fire, including the temple. And then what he did is he went around and he found the strongest and the brightest people that were there. And he took 10,000 of them, and he put them in chains, and he sent them back to Babylon. In your Bibles, there's a short little book in the middle of the prophetic writings called Lamentations. And this book was written by the prophet Jeremiah. It's a book of lament, of crying, of wailing, and weeping about what has happened to the city of Jerusalem. It was a terrible time for Israel. And so what happens is there's 10,000 Israelites in Babylon, 10,000 of the strongest and brightest people of Israel, and they're there in Babylon, and Babylon has a purpose for them. And while they're in Babylon, they're asking the question, where is God? The temple, the place where God dwells here on earth, it's been destroyed. Where is God? Is, Is he even real? And what do we do right now? What what is our purpose as God's people? How do we be faithful as we're here in Babylon at this time? And so as these 10,000 people, these 10,000 Israelites are in Babylon, God sends a letter to them through the prophet Jeremiah. I encourage you to turn to Jeremiah chapter 29. It's just a few pages to the right of Psalm 125. Jeremiah chapter 29. Jeremiah 29, 4 through 9. I'll read the first part of this letter that God sent to the people of Babylon through the prophet Jeremiah. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those that I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. So first of all, just notice that God says it wasn't Nebuchadnezzar that carried you there. Uh, I carried you there. 
I carried you into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, and so while you are there, build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. Also, seek the peace and the prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Yes, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Do not let the prophets and the diviners among you deceive you. Do not listen to their dreams. You encourage them to have. They are prophesying lies to you in my name. I have not sent them, declares the Lord. There were prophets that were coming and saying, it's just going to be three or four years you're going to be here in Babylon. Don't worry about it. Don't worry about building a house. Don't worry about planting a garden. We're going back to Jerusalem. And God says to them, you're going to be here for a long time. Get used to it. Build houses, settle down, build gardens. And while you're there, I want you to continue to be a people of blessing. I called Abraham to go and to be a blessing to the nations. I am sending you to Babylon to be a blessing to them. Seek the peace of that city. That is a remarkable thing because what happened, what had just happened to these 10,000 people, by the people that brought them into this city, they had killed their family members. They had burned down their homes. They had burned the entire city that they love. And now God is saying to them, seek the peace of that city. That is God's calling for his people there. I am the one who has carried you into exile. I have carried you here because of your disobedience. This is my judgment on you, Israel. And now while you're here in Babylon, I'm calling you to be a blessing to that city. You are still a kingdom of priests and a holy nation there in Babylon. And so this letter acknowledges that they're going to be tempted to lose their integrity, to undermine the leadership of Babylon in whatever way they can. And the letter says, no, be faithful and become a part of that city. But at the same time, don't just be like everyone else. Remain distinct. Don't decrease in number there. Continue to remain a people. Don't forget who you are. Remain faithful to God. And the Bible gives us a very specific story of some specific young men who lived at this time. And it's the story of Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Turn with me to the book of Daniel. And in this story about these remarkable young men, we read about how they lived faithfully in Babylon at this time. Daniel and his friends were one of the 10,000 who were taken into exile from Jerusalem and into Babylon. And while they're there, their example is a great example for us as we think about what it means for us to be faithful in our lives today. Daniel chapter 1, verses 1 through 7. Maybe just a little background before I read. As I mentioned earlier, the Babylonians had a purpose for them. What the Babylonians would do when they conquered a particular group of people is they would take the best and the brightest and they would train them up into their ways so that eventually that they would become good Babylonian citizens too. 
and to contribute to Babylonian society in whatever way that they could. And we see that this happens here in the first seven verses of Daniel chapter 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put it in the treasure house of his God. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of the court officials, to bring in some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility, young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace, the best and the brightest of Israel. Bring them to me. He was to teach them the language and the literature of the Babylonians, and the king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that they were to enter into the king's service. Among these were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief official gave them new names to Daniel, the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. The king takes the best and the brightest, and they put them in the very best schools of Babylon. They send them to the Harvard of Babylon at that time. They say, we want you to learn about the Babylonian ways. And the way that Daniel and his friends respond to this is really incredible. Again, remember, his family has, these, their families have just been killed by the Babylonians, but they go. They participate and they agree to learn. They go to school in Babylon. They read Babylonian literature and they learn their culture and they listen to their music and they wear their clothes and they learn about the histories and the ways of the people of Babylon. They understand their culture, but they also, in the same time, refuse to be like the Babylonians. Look what happens in verse 8. But Daniel was resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. And he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself in this way. Now God had caused the official to show favor and sympathy to Daniel, but the official told Daniel, I'm afraid of the Lord, my Lord the king who has assigned your food and your drink. Why should I see you looking worse than all the other young men your age? The king would then have my head because of you. And so Daniel said to the guard whom the chief official had appointed, Please test your servants for ten days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink, and then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food, and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So he agreed to do this and tested them for ten days. And at the end of ten days, they looked healthier and better nourished than the young men who ate the royal food. And so the guard took away their choice food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables instead. And to these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning, and Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kind. For Daniel, faithfulness to God came first. He will not disobey God's commands. But in every other way, he was willing to become like the Babylonians for the sake of blessing that city. Daniel and his friends refused to eat the food of the king. That was against the law that was given to them in the Torah. Later, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego would refuse to bow their knee to King Nebuchadnezzar whenever he came by, and so they're thrown into the fiery furnace, and God saved them from that. Daniel and his friends engaged the city. They served their leaders, but they always served God first. 
In the rest of the book of Daniel, we see Daniel faithfully following the words of Jeremiah's letter from Jeremiah 29. He became part of the city of Babylon, not to benefit himself, not even to benefit his own people, but for the benefit of the people of Babylon, all the while remaining faithful to God and not forgetting who he was. Daniel never forgot that those who trust in God are like Mount Zion. And that as the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people now and forever. Friends, I want to suggest to you today that it's our calling as God's people to be faithful, even when it seems like faithfulness doesn't work. Even when it seems as if that's a struggle and it just doesn't work in the world, our calling is to place our faith and our hope in the God who promises us that he will come and make things right again. At times of plenty, and it's when it seems easy to give God praise, we're called to be faithful. At times of grief and disappointment and frustration, we are called to be faithful. It's our calling to be faithful even when it doesn't seem to work in light of our present circumstances. I've shared before from Hebrews chapter 11 that the result of faithfulness sometimes looks like success and sometimes it looks like miserable failure. Turn to Hebrews chapter 11. In Hebrews chapter 11, the writer of Hebrews speaks about these great men and women of faith and all of the things that they did. And he comes to the very end of his list of people of faith, and he says this, verse 32, Hebrews eleven thirty-two. What more shall I say? I don't have time to tell about Gideon or Barak or Samson or Jephthah or David or Samuel and the prophets who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, and gained what was promised, who shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of the flames, and escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned into strength, and who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. Sometimes faithfulness looks like being king. (laughs) Sometimes faithfulness looks like winning the battles. But then look at what he says next. Women received back their dead, raised to life again. Others were tortured and refused to be released so that they might gain a better resurrection. Some faced jeers and flogging, while still others were chained and put in prison. Some of them were stoned. They were sawed in two. They were put to death by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains and in caves and in holes in the, gra- in the ground. All of these were commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised. God had planned something better for us, so that only together with us would they be made perfect. Sometimes faithfulness looked like victory, and sometimes faithfulness looked like defeat. And this morning, we have to remember that our calling is to place our faith in our King and to be faithful to Him at all times. Whether faithfulness leads to what looks like worldly failure or whether faithfulness looks like worldly success. This morning, we have to be faithful 
at all times. Those of you who are serving communion, uh, please go ahead and head back. This morning, we are going to remember that we have an example of one who was faithful at all times. On the night that Jesus was about to go to the cross, he kneeled down before his father and he asked, is there any other way that I can walk? Is there any other way that we can do this? Father, please take this cup from me. Can I fulfill your calling in any other way in my life? And God's answer, at least for that moment, was silence. And so Jesus knew in that moment that he must walk the way of faithfulness, that he must walk the way of the cross, which looked like failure to anyone who was watching. But we know that God took this terrible event, the worst event in the history of the world, the death of the Son of God on the cross, and from his perspective, he saw it as victory, as the sacrifice for our sin. And that's what we remember today as we take communion. And I want to say to each one of us today, as we're all facing our own trials, our own struggle to be faithful, may we remember today what Jesus did in order to remain faithful. May taking communion today make us courageous in being faithful to what God is calling us to do in our own lives. Our God in heaven, we thank you for this communion meal that we take together. This bread and this cup that we take and we remember how far you went to be faithful to your Father and how far you went because you loved us. Lord, I pray that we would receive this bread and this cup today with great faith and hope that you are doing a good work in our hearts to call us into places that are uncomfortable and difficult and challenging. And God, that we would be always faithful to who you are. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.